I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear, my podcast about Jewish food. Thanks so much for joining me. A few weeks ago, I met with wonderful culinary novelist, cooking maven, and generally very nice person, Stacy Bayless. We chatted for over an hour, and in my previous episode, Stacy shared her very interesting story of her start as a culinary writer. In this episode, we continue our conversation and talk about Jewish food, her biggest cooking influence, and things to think about if you're redesigning your kitchen. I'm happy to welcome back Stacy Bayless. Let's talk a little bit more about Jewish foods. Okay. And so tell me, what, what are some of your favorite Jewish foods to cook? I do love a kugel. <laughs> I really love a noodle kugel. Uh, and I've given you yes. rec- my, my grandmother's recipe for noodle kugel, which I started a few years ago baking in muffin tins. Because the only thing I don't like about a noodle kugel is that when you go to slice it and it's hot you get the little wiggly noodles just go for toots everywhere and you get these sloppy things and it breaks up the topping and only four people get the really good corner pieces that have the crispy edges. And I thought, how does everybody get a crispy edge kugel and how do you not have to hack your beautiful kugel to pieces to serve it to people? And I went, aha, muffin tins. And sometimes I bake them very rationally in a normal muffin tin and sometimes I bake them very indulgently in a jumbo muffin tin depending on how many carbs we want. But I now always bake all of my kugels in a muffin tin, which is my, which Johnny approved of. So it's a, I love it because it's such a simple thing and it's such a strange thing to people that haven't grown up with it. When you explain that there's noodles sort of baked in a sweet custard and that there's cornflakes on top, people who have not grown up with that don't understand it. And then you give them some and they go, oh, I get it. So noodle kugel is a favorite. I do, I do love a good brisket. I don't make it that often anymore because it's so rich. But there's something about that taste that is such a sense memory. It takes me back to so many Rosh Hashanah tables and Passover tables. and um, So that is a favorite thing to make as well. And that is, I, personally, I can relate to that. I think it's, there is a lot about food memory, particularly around the holidays when you're cooking things that our family recipes or yeah, it's, um, I think it's a very cool thing. Do you have, because of that food, Jewish holidays, do you have a favorite holiday because of the food that you eat or that you serve? Well, it's not Jewish, although I think it, I think at its core, it's a Jewish ish holiday, but Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Ah. Thanksgiving is my Holy grail. Uh, I have now been cooking Thanksgiving for my family for over 25 years. I took it over as soon as I got back from college, pretty much. And it is my, it's still my favorite meal to cook. It's still my, if anybody asks me, what do you want for your last supper? I want Thanksgiving. <laughs> I love that as much as I like to experiment and, and can be very gourmet and get fancy ingredients, my family likes a really Norman Rockwell basics, a roast turkey with a basic gravy and mashed potatoes and sweet potatoes and cranberry sauce. And we do cream spinach. Um, it's, it's super simple. Uh, and I've now been doing it for so long that it's actually one of the easiest dinner parties I make all year. I, I could not be more, I take a nap on Thanksgiving day. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, but I always felt 
it, it's very funny. Growing up, it never occurred to me that Thanksgiving wasn't a Jewish holiday because it's so much about food and family. It's about all of the people that you love in a room together all day, snacking, snacking, snacking all day before you have the world's biggest meal early enough that then you get to sort of have it again before you go to bed. <laughs> to me, there's sort of nothing more Jewish than that. And I was probably... I was probably, you know, in double digits age-wise before it occurred to me that, no, everybody does Thanksgiving and it's not just my people uh, because it comes right at sort of the tail end of most of the Jewish holidays. I'm like, oh, it's just part of the fall grouping exactly. of holidays that we do. Uh, in terms of the Jewish holidays, I love Passover. Um, I love the storytelling. I love the food. Uh, I, love, I love that it's a mitzvah to have Gentiles at the table. I married a Gentile but he's really good at the readings. <laughs> uh, one of the best Passovers we had, my, my husband Bill's family came up uh, from Kentucky and from Jacksonville, Florida, and my father-in-law is a retired Methodist minister, and he has that great preacher voice. Um, and as we always joke, the Old Testament is where we all agree, so he's read all of this material, and to, and to go around the table and hear his voice doing this story that's so ancient and lovely. You know, I'm a storyteller, so you have a night that's all about food and storytelling that couldn't be more up my alley. No kidding. It's like the, it's the perfect marriage. It is. So, so we talked a little bit about the fact that you have, have shared two recipes with me, which I'm very excited about. And with the high holidays just around the corner, let's talk a little bit about Rosh Hashanah and, and your recipe for tomato pudding, which looks amazing. And it's not the kind of thing, I'm not sure what my expectations were, but I was surprised to see tomato pudding. So talk to me a little bit about that. So this is a, this is a, a great recipe. So tomato pudding is essentially a sweet and sour, but it is technically a savory dish, even though it has a lot of sugar in it. Side dish for a for a holiday meal and it is surprising but it fills the same role that for example an agrodolce would or mostara so an agrodolce in italian cooking has a sweet and sour element it's vinegar and it's sugar and it's fruits and it's a little bit of spice and it's amazing with meats particularly sort of roasted meats or heavier braised meats to have that companionship that has acidity to it that brightens the palate that isn't so you know dense of a flavor it's a recipe that I adapted from a cookbook that my grandmother edited um, and I can't remember which there was a, a series of cookbooks that was put out in Chicago as fundraiser for the Council for Jewish Elderly there were thoughts for good eating and thoughts for buffets and thoughts for festive foods and they were crowdsourced cookbooks from Chicago's finest hostesses, most of them Jewish, that were compiled and published in hardcover by Houghton Mifflin. They weren't the old, you think of the like the spiral-bound yes. women's auxiliary crowdsourced cookbooks. These cookbooks were rigorously collected. The recipes were tested and tested and edited and changed to make sure that they worked. And then they were put out. And my grandmother worked on this series as, as an editor and recipe tester. And this was one of the recipes in one of the books. And the first time I ate it, it was a revelation because I don't really like raw tomatoes. I never I, have. I 
But I like cooked tomatoes. I like I like spaghetti sauce. I like ketchup. I like tomato soup. I just never liked a raw tomato. And the idea that tomatoes could become, it's essentially a savory bread pudding full of tomato paste. I have added some fresh sliced tomatoes on top because the recipe as written can go a little cloying on the sweet side. I've brightened it up a little bit. It's a little more acidic. It's a little less sugary. But it's a shocking delight with rich roasted meats. It's a great, it it works with lamb, it works with beef, it works with chicken. So it's that surprising dish. You know, Nora Ephron always says when you're, if you're going to make a good dinner party, you have your protein and you have your starch and you have your vegetable. And then you have one dish that's a surprise. That's like a bonus. It's the fourth thing on the plate. For me, tomato pudding is the perfect fourth thing on the plate because most people don't expect it, but it's really yummy. Um, it looks, the recipe sounds great, and the photos you sent look really terrific. So people will be able to find those. On They'll be able to find website. those and, and make the recipe. And the nice thing about tomato pudding is if you have leftovers in the morning, you can put it back in the oven and bake an egg on it and eat it for breakfast. And it's sort of like a sweet and sour shashuka. Ooh, uh-huh. what a great idea. Let's go just for a second and tell me a little bit more about these cookbooks that sound amazing and how old were you when all this was happening was this part of your growing up with your grandmother and food experience and it sounds pretty cool it it was very cool the the first book was published in 1945 so I was not around for that one Uh, but the last one came out in 1985 so I was 15 when that one was published and so I was around for, I think, the editing and work on, I believe, two of the books were within the span of my lifetime and memory. And I remember being in my grandmother's kitchen, and she she always worked longhand on yellow legal pads of various sizes. She had little ones. She had regular size ones. She had the really big, like, legal size ones. And she almost always worked in red pen. Any time I remember looking at a grocery list in my grandmother's hand, it's always in red pen. Um, and so I remember coming home from school and going to her house, which was, you know, right underneath mine and going to her house first. And, and she would have papers everywhere. And usually she would be cursing the people that had submitted these recipes. Um, a lot of them, it's, they started from a time when a lot of these wonderful Chicago hostesses that were donating the recipes were actually donating recipes that were not their own family recipes, but they were the family recipes of their housekeepers and their cooks and the people that were actually doing the food at their homes and and for their parties. So a lot of them needed serious testing and editing. Uh, And my grandmother had a great natural palate. She was not a trained cook. Her mother, my great-grandmother, was a terrible cook, truly awful. Um, And so, you know, she... My grandmother always joked she had an affinity for things that were burnt. She liked burnt toast. She would always, if I had hot dogs on the grill, she'd say, keep one on too long for me. She liked her meat well done. And it's because she grew up with my grandma, with my great-grandmother who just cooked everything condemned. But she was a young bride, 20, when she married my grandfather. And all of a sudden, she had to learn to cook. And she embraced that with tremendous passion and found that she was good at it and she had a a really great palate and she was fearless 
in the kitchen. There was nothing that couldn't be doctored. There was nothing that, even if she bought something, she added a little this, a little of that. She was known to go to even a fast food restaurant and she's adding extra salt and pepper to the coleslaw. I mean, she just, (laughs) she could not, not futz with something. She never made the same dish twice because everything was off the cuff and it was a pinch of this and a pinch of that till it tasted right to her. So her recipes are almost all of them a written recipe with notes in the margins and things crossed off and extra things added and then a whole list of the back of what to substitute or how to make it different or how to make it better, which is very much how I cook. So watching her work on those cookbooks... And to be so fearless in the kitchen made me think you're not supposed to have any fear in the kitchen. And that if something isn't working, you can fix it. She also wasn't shy about tossing something if it truly was not salvageable. If it was burnt, if it was oversalted, she would just dump it and start over. And her philosophy was, you know, you can always order a pizza. (laughs) No one's going to starve because you burnt the casserole. And so I have that same attitude about cooking. I don't, I don't ever question whether I can do something and sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not, but I don't ever go hungry regardless. The only thing she couldn't cook was fudge. Really? She could never get it to set. She must have tried dozens of recipes over the years. I inherited all of her, I inherited her cookbooks, but I inherited her recipe files and there must be 15 different fudge recipes in there. And my dad always joked that growing up, My grandfather knew that if she called him at work and said, bring home a tub of ice cream, it meant she had tried to cook fudge and it was hot fudge sundaes for dinner because it never set up for her. (laughs) And because of that, I've never, ever tried to make it. Oh, no. Mm Mm-mm. Oh, it's the one funny. thing it's the one thing I won't cook. I won't even attempt it because and I don't know if I'm more worried that I won't be successful, that I would have inherited what she called the fudge curse or that I would be successful and there would be something that I could do that she couldn't. But uh, I, I, it's the one thing I won't make. I'll, I'll buy it if it's a good version, but I won't, I won't try to make fudge. Oh, that's an interesting Stacy story, I think. So we talked a little bit about Kugel, and you're sharing that recipe thinking about um, Break the Fast. Yes. And um, so I have to ask you, because I know you do, you love to entertain and do lots of cooking. And so does Break the Fast happen at your house? It depends. It depends usually on what day of the week it is. I always host Passover. That's the one that is always at my house. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is often at my sister's house, although this year it'll be here because she's just moved into a new house and they're not quite 100% ready to do that entertaining. Yom Kippur is sort of a moving target, and it depends what day of the week it is. If it's in the middle of a week, then it is often either at my parents' house or it'll be at my house. Uh, If it's on a weekend, then we are all together at our weekend place, and then it'll be out there. But, you know, for us, Yom Kippur is always essentially brunch at night. The break, it's tuna salad and kugel and bagels and lox and coleslaw, and, you know, it's a very light brunchy feeling meal and because of that it can happen anywhere because it's all just stuff you kind of show up with there's not a other than the kugel there's no real cooking involved so it can be anywhere but thanksgiving passover those happen at my house so i can find stacy bayless in a lot of places amazon yes your own website mm-hmm. uh, which is stacybayless.com 
And spell all that. S-T-A-C-E-Y-B-A-L-L-I-S dot com. I also know that you've been a blogger. Yes. And I see you on Instagram, Mm -hmm. Facebook. Yep. Have I left anything off? I'm on Twitter. Oh, right. And I I do some freelance food writing, so you can find my recipes and articles at extracrispy.com and thetakeout.com, and I occasionally will write for Bake From Scratch magazine and Plate magazine. Wow, you're a busy lady. I do what I can. (laughs) Before I um, kind of end, I wanted to ask you, I know you did a lot of work on your home, and I'm sure there were challenges and fun things, but because the kitchen and cooking is so important to you, What was the experience of redoing your kitchen? Was it the hardest thing because you wanted it to live up to certain standards? Was it the most fun? Talk to me about a little bit about that and what were the most important components of that kitchen? Like, okay, if if I can only do X, it's going to be this. The kitchen was, in terms of the home renovation, it was both the most fun and the most challenging. It had the most pressure around it because it was, as a, as a room, as a construct, it's the single most expensive thing that we did in the house. I had waited 20 years to have a kitchen. You know, I, I lived in this building as a renter before we bought it for 19 years. And I had a kitchen that was the size of a postage stamp with an electric oven and only one oven to boot, you know, electric stovetop and one oven. And no counter space. And I had sat waiting for my landlord to sell me this building, which I was refusing to leave ever. And all of a sudden, there was this opportunity to really do your dream kitchen. And for a lot of people, if you do the, you know, starter home dream, you know, you get you kind of along the way, you learn some things about home renovation, you learn about how you cook. For me, I was flying blind a little bit. But what I knew was... I needed to design a kitchen that was very different than most home kitchen designs. And so the challenge was explaining to our architects that we didn't want the very contemporary construct of the kitchen slash homework station slash family room gathering space. What we really wanted and needed was a zoned restaurant kitchen with a chef's table. That, yes, it's an eat-in kitchen, and yes, it's our day-to-day kitchen, but, for example, we got rid of the whole idea of the magic triangle, right? Everybody talks about the magic triangle. That triangle does not work for me. So we zoned the kitchen with two primary cooking zones that share one cleanup space and share an island prep space in the middle. We have a baking zone that is across the room. We have a food zone that is both the dry goods pantry right next to the big fridge freezer. And then we have a separate room that we refer to as the kitchen library, which is a small equipment room and cookbook library. And by zoning it in that way, for example, you know, when I looked at my architects and they said, well, do you want your two ovens? I was so excited. Now I'm going to have two. <laughs> do you want them up and down or side by side? I said, I want them at counter height and I want them across the room from each other. I don't want them anywhere near each other. And I want one to be gas and one to be electric. Ooh, so interesting. So I have next to the primary cooking area where I have the stovetop. I have a gas oven, which is great 
for roasting. And then across the room, I have an electric oven, which is really great for baking because it's a much more consistent, manageable heat. And the baking section is across the room because for example, at Thanksgiving, if it's time to take the pie out and it's also time to manage the turkey, you don't need to have two people elbowing each other in the head next to each other to do that. Baking often does happen at, on a big cooking day for a holiday at the same time as other things are happening and it requires usually a cooler space. So by putting it all the way across the room, it gives us a space that stays pretty cool for things like rolling out pastry dough while the other side of the room is warming up with the with the oven and the stovetop. Wow, that's brilliant. I would never I would never have thought of those things. So clearly you did a lot of thinking about this and a lot of planning. We we did a lot of thinking, a lot of planning. We made a lot of decisions that we had the the luxury to make because it's a very big space. We are two people with no children and a whole lot of house. So we had the ability, for example, to have no upper cabinets in the kitchen, which we did because I am a short person. I am not going to get taller as I age. I am also an enormous klutz. And my poor husband could only think about tiny little elderly me climbing up on things and pulling stacks of plates down on my head or falling off step stools and breaking bones all over the place. So we have no uppers, which is great because we had a big space and so we had, and we have this kitchen library. So we have space to do that. It's not something everybody can do in their kitchen, but having that zoning thing was sort of a revelation for our architects, but it also really allowed us to focus on, we didn't buy any suites of appliances. We didn't care whether our appliances all matched, and they don't. There's five different brands in that kitchen. But they're five different brands because in a suite of appliances, if you're really good at a cooktop, you might not be so good at refrigeration. If you're really spectacular at an oven, your dishwasher might not be so good. We just wanted to get what's the function first, and then the form followed. So if anybody who's listening is interested in seeing more of your kitchen, they can do that at your blog, right? They can. So the blog is blog.polymathchronicles.net. You can also, if you're interested in seeing some, some photos, Make It Better magazine did a lovely feature on the kitchen, and you can find it on their website. The Washington Post did a feature on the kitchen, and you can usually find that on their website. If you do a search on my name at either of those sites, then those articles should pop up and they've got some beautiful photography. Yes, they do. I've seen some of those myself. So I don't want to close before asking you about this uh, special membership you have in an international organization for women in the food, wine, and hospitality industries. So can you tell, talk to me just a little bit about that? Sure. So I'm a member of an organization called Les Dames d'Escoffier, which is the Ladies of Escoffier. It's a, a women's organization that was started really in response to there being organizations for men in the food, wine, and hospitality industries and not for women, and in fact, women ex being excluded from those organizations. It's a not-for-profit that uh, is both a networking organization for women in the industry, but also we raise money for scholarships to send other women to culinary school. We have a Green Tables initiative where we're focused on sustainability and those kinds of issues. It is an educational group. We do programming around various types of education. It can be very serious, like some of the 
um, issues that are happening for women in the industry, like healthcare issues, mental health issues, substance abuse issues. But we also do, we have a book club called Doms Who Read. We have social get-togethers. We have a really wonderful programming committee that is constantly coming up with interesting events that are a combination of education and social. And it really is, has been a, a, a tremendous added value to my life to have access to a group of people who share my passion and, and are a, re, a tremendous resource. And because it's an international organization, you have the benefit of this, you know, I was never in a sorority. But there's this sisterhood feeling that happens um, amongst the ladies. And, and a great example is we have a directory that is the entire membership uh, internationally. So if you're traveling, and often a lot of us travel for work, and we travel by ourselves, and you find yourself in a city, and your work is done at 6 o'clock, and now you need to have dinner, and you kind of don't want the sad hotel lobby salad if you can avoid it, you have an ability to just reach out via email or phone to a local chapter and say, number one, I'm in town, and if anybody wants to meet me, I'd love to meet them. And if you're not available to get together, do you have any recommendations of where I should eat? And I've now met some really wonderful people who are, I, I, I was just in London and met up with a couple of the London doms just by sending an email saying, I'm going to be in London for four days. I'd love to meet anyone who's available. And two of them were available and we got together for, for cocktails. And it was, you just find these wonderful people wherever you go. It's been really lovely. How wonderful. Well, I think that this is a great way to end. Sure. We've gotten to talk about lots of food stuff, which has been really fun. Thank you so much for your fine hospitality of opening up your home to me and and this really great conversation. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to all of you for listening to The Big Schmear today. Our engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Be sure to check out thebigschmear.com to find recipes shared by my guests. If you like The Big Schmear, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and like us on Facebook. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.